Welcome to a special Halloween episode of the Just End the Suffering podcast. Normally, we talk about New York sports perspective from the view of a long-suffering fan. I'm one of your hosts. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. That's going to be coming later in the week. The sports stuff here. We have plenty of sports stuff in the feed, but as regular listeners of the podcast know, I have a lot of fun around Halloween, spooky season. You know, this is Halloween. This episode is dropping here. We're going to have some special bonus coverage of some pop culture-related stuff that isn't coming out the last month. We're going to be joined by our pop culture team here. We're going to be joined in a minute by John Stanko of Barstool Sports, our movie guy on the podcast here. We're going to talk about the first two episodes of The Peripheral on Amazon Prime, the new fantasy show coming off of the heels of the Westworld creators. So we'll talk about that. Get Stanko is also top five Halloween movies. He'll give that to us as well. That's coming up in just a bit. We're also going to dive back into the Flanniverse. Alan Austin is joining me to talk about the latest Mike Flanagan show, the first season of The Midnight Club on Netflix. All 10 episodes are out there. Very fun show. Get to that in just a bit. Also, our pop culture correspondent, Sandra Rose, is going to be here as well. We'll talk about the Marvel Studios Halloween special here, The Werewolf by Night. That was a fun conversation with Sam. as well. It's coming up at the end of the show. If you like to hear on the Justin Suffering Podcast, feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual suspects. Simply search for Just and the Suffering Your Favorite Podcast platforms and follow episodes there. Feel free to your feedback and starring as well. They'll make the podcast even better going forward. Check out the YouTube page, Mike Phelps on YouTube. Video version of the conversations with John, Allen, and Sam are up on the YouTube channel again, Mike Phelps on YouTube. Without any further ado, let's get to our first segment here. We're going to talk about the peripheral with John Stanko right after this. Your skills are being sadly wasted in this den of imbecility. I got things to do. Mama needs tending. The house needs cleaning. I'm done pretending that I can live in a sim. It ain't real. What is it? Cutting edge VR, Flynn. Folks want me to beta test it for a shitload of money, too. Just lay back. Close your eyes. <laughs> Count back from 10. This is London. But London's 70 years from what you think of as the present. <laughs> it was like being there in your body. You're inside the peripheral. Piloting that body as if it were your own. <laughs> Holy shit. I thought I was playing a sim. It turns out if you prick us, we bleed. We are back here kicking off our annual Halloween special now, the third annual one. We 
had this guy on every year. I think two years ago was the Mandalorian season two premiere. Last year was Dune. This year we're talking about the peripheral with the great John Stagel from Barstool. John, welcome back. How are you? Mike, I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing this evening? Pretty good. I want to give a shout out from the podcast audience here, the newly engaged John Stagel. Congratulations on a successful proposal. Thank you. No, it was very nice. We had a very good weekend, Emma and I, and we're very excited for the future. Love her very much. So thank you. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear about that, and I'm glad to have you back on here because, I mean, we've had some big picture items, big ticket items here the last couple of years around this time, and I feel like this is kind of in that category. I would say so. This is a, a big bet by uh, by Amazon with this show, and Chloe, Gross, uh, Chloe Grace Moretz coming out of nowhere. haven't really seen her in a decade in anything I like, so let's see how this goes. Yeah, we'll see how this goes. This is a show, high content show from Amazon Prime, mate, brought to you by the creators from Westworld, which is what drew me in, uh, Jonathan Nolan, Lisa Joy, heavily involved in this one. So for the general audience here who has not yet seen the two episodes of the of the peripheral on Prime, can you give them the, the, the elevator pitch of what the show is? The elevator pitch is set in the near distant future. Um, VR video games are a major uh, amusement for the for the population. Sometimes the VR becomes too real and you find yourself in a future you never expected. Yeah, absolutely here. And basically we see that the main, like the main thrust of the premiere basically is we meet like uh Chloe Grossman-Retz's character, uh, Flynn Foster. And like, she like, lives with her mom who was battling cancer and her brother who was like a video game tester basically. And like, they, they're both very good at testing video games. They end up getting this new piece of technology. lets them go into what the things of video game. They're actually going into the future and also reality. And have to shenanigans ensue basically shenanigans ensue there you can tell this is westworld because it's not a spoiler to say there are both there are two different timelines if you will two different places to be two different plot lines to remember so definitely heavy heavy westworld vibes i do think that i liked in the future mike how it wasn't too futuristic it didn't look like you were in robocop land or whatever it was just like the bikes were improved and stuff like that so i like the vibe that this uh, that the show kind of put out where you don't need to be crazy to have this technology. Um, but the thing for me is the first episode of the pilot set up the exhibition so well, and then I didn't love episode two and I wanted to be continued to hook for it. But episode two kind of left me a little bit on a done note. I don't know what you thought compared to episode one to episode two. Yeah. Episode one was the action movie. Basically episode one was like, Oh my God, we all these accident sequences. We have like uh, Flynn, like using basically going into an avatar for a brother and fighting like robots and like fighting yeah. these, these criminals. And then, Second episode is a lot more like, here, we're going to explain what you just watched for the first hour. Here's, here's what actually happened in the second hour. Yeah, I would agree. But you also had that action sequence in the second one in the woods. That Didn't that start that whole episode out? So the action kind of continued through both. I, what you're saying, though, as I love the first one, how the first time we see them in the VR, the game looks kind of janky. It doesn't look super smooth. Then you immediately get to the get to the future. And that thing looks crisp. And I really like that production design, that direct, that choice by the, by the director. Yeah. Let's get some general thoughts here. Like apart from like the act, like what do you think overall about this from here? Cause for me, I like thought the action was top notch. The action was very good. I liked the vibe. I liked the pacing. Um, I kind of wanted to get to know the characters a bit more. They look kind of bland to me, kind of stereotypical, but overall the vibes are what got me in there. This was the Westworld kind of thing where I liked where it wasn't too overwhelming. I need to start. Yeah, I liked, like, I mean, obviously, we got to know Flynn pretty well. We got to know her brother pretty well. Like, apart from those two, I feel like everybody else was kind of, like, a little bit, like, one note. But, like, they're, they're at least the notes were interesting for the most part. Right. There's the character who's on the bike, a war veteran, wounded, and going through tough times. That's a pretty stereotypical storyline for some shows sometimes. So, 
the the thing I did like though is in the second one they introduced the new characters and you kind of get the higher level people. Mike, you get the people who are the ones making the decisions or the ones causing the trouble. We kind of don't know yet. So I do like how they took that next step in, on episode two to to break break the world open a little bit more. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing here, we have this sort of dual world concept going on here between Flynn's current timeline, the alternate t- 2099 in London, where like she apparently is stumbling on some sort of criminal conspiracy has to work with these people from that timeline to stop it. So that's, that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, and isn't in 2099 there's like a virus, something that took people out? That's why the first time we see Chloe Grace's character uh, in her peripheral, it's like there's nobody there. Is yeah. It wasn't like a virus or something? Yeah, they basically said that, like, something happened, like, wiped out a lot of humanity between, like, in the 70 years between, like, her timeline and where that is. Uh, I mean, how many shows are we going to have in the next three years where a virus knocks out a part of the population leading to a drastically different future? Uh, you could this tell. Seems to be a, this you, seems to be a thing. Station 11 just did it, too. You could tell a lot of these writers that just, just stay home thinking, like, COVID, oh, plot device for my show. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> hey, I mean, to be fair, it's fairly novel. I'm excited for it, just if it's done well. Yeah, if it is done well here, I did think like I could tell they really blew the budget on the premiere because like the visuals were like stunning for this show. That's not something I'm used to from like a prime TV show. Like I'm I, last prime show I watched was a League of Their the League of Their Own reboot, so like I'm not used to that level of like expectations here. Now you have not watched Rings of Power, then, good sir. I have not because those those visuals they are incredible and they sucked me in big time. Um, I would say this is the second highest produced uh, prime show behind Rings of Power. Rings of Power, clearly number one. Yeah, this is their big budget bet here. And what do you think of the cast as a whole? Because I feel like, like we obviously talk about Grace Moretz as our lead. Like a few other neck recognizable faces in there, but like there's a lot of new new blood as well. Yeah, I like the uh, Jack Raynor who plays Burton Fisher. I kind of liked him in the action sequences. I liked him when he was playing Suave in the VR, trying to woo the woman quickly. I thought that I thought that he was pretty good, um, and he seems to have a bit of a deeper past with his military background that hopefully we get a little bit more of as well. So I was impressed by him the most in terms of all the performers from the first couple episodes. Yeah, he kind of gave you like budget Chris Pratt vibes in terms of like what the vibe the stack they were going for there. Yeah, maybe the good side of Chris Pratt before he completely uh, totally sold out. Yeah, absolutely. Here I was happy to see Tania Miller show up in this show. Remember she she was in Haunting a Blind Matter. Now you get her back here. That was fun. Yes, I mean, man, Blind Miner, we mentioned Flanagan. Mike, that's great podcasting, bringing a full circle. I see what you did there. Yeah, it's spooky season. I liked, I was also happy as a Westworld fan to see they got Louis Hertham in the show. Like, he's as the modern day, as the current day bad guy, like a uh, Corporal Pickett or whatever. Is, I think it's uh, Corbel, Corbel Pickett. He's like the, he's like the uh, drug runner. He has one badass yes. scene where he basically like, sh- like smashes one of his underlings like face into a glass that they're drinking out of. Like, that was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, you got to teach people to respect and they can't be bullied, right? Though yeah. going into drastic measures and bullying itself is not the way to go. Um, yeah, I, I think they're setting up the different levels of danger, whether it be in 2039, whether it be in 2099, or whether it be somewhere in between, because it's probably not the only two years we're going to. So I think they're doing a good job of layering those different problems. Yeah, wait, what do you think this show works or Chloe Grace Moretz is the lead? Because I know like she hasn't like had like like had a ton of like big stuff lately. I mean I liked Tom and Jerry, which she was in last year. I enjoyed it for what it was, but otherwise I really don't know anything about her except kick-ass, which I loved. Only the first one. Don't, didn't love the second one. I thought she was good. She's much more grown up than I remember. And I think that works on me because she's a kind of a young adult looking woman, but she's acting so adult-like. And so 
she looks older to me and she she's fitting that role well. So I've actually been impressed with her to start as well, because I mean, I haven't seen her in a decade in anything that I really truly uh, remembered. So I'm glad to have her back. Crazy. I think she's only 25. Man, I'm 30. She's doing a lot better than me when I was 25. <laughs> so maybe maybe that decade off did her good. I mean, she was 15. She was, what, 15, 13 when she did Kick-Ass? Wasn't that like 2010? Yeah, I think around there, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. She, 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 flew close to, uh, she flew too close to the sun too soon. That's why she burnt out for, for a decade. But now she's flying back. Yeah, I do like her. The delight of her character sort of going through this thing where she doesn't want to really be involved in the gaming world. She's like trying to do her own thing, take care of their sick mother, and then they get she has to the blast of information from the future, talk about how like oh like your mom dies four weeks from now. They show her the newspaper of it, and then they're like, we have this experimental drug that might work for her. So like you want you want you have to help us with our mission. So she gets sucked in that way. Yeah, do you think she doesn't like playing the games or do you think she avoids it because she's going to get addicted to it? That's kind of a thing that I have going here is, uh, like, I think she knows she's really good at them, but she knows how intoxicating and dangerous they are. And she's going to be toying with that both literally physically and mentally when the two worlds maybe start blending together. We saw her with the physical pain. I believe it was her back that automatically started hurting her randomly. Or no, it was her hand. Yeah, it was her hand. Her hands, her hands started hurting her. And it's like you see that physical connection between the worlds already starting to crack down. We might see it mentally and physically. Yeah, I did take the sign. I'm like Burton who like we had the whole thing throughout the whole plot of like, oh, like is he doing too many drugs trying to stay keep up these gains? And then we found out that he's been going through a lot. The mom is giving him pills to try and cope with some of his PTSD from like his time in the war. So like. Another good, like, good balance. The family, main family, we sort of got the dynamics pretty quickly. The rest of the characters, not as much. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, it's probably the tripod, the emotional tripod that the show is built on. Um, it was a kind of a, is it was a cheap, happy moment to have her mom cured of cancer. That was kind of something I didn't necessarily love. Um, but they're, like I said, they're, they're the emotional tripod of the show. You want to show their connections together and the trust they have in one another to know, to be able to trust their decisions. So, I get why they did that. I did like the storytelling, though, they set up there where they started the two-episode premiere with her saying, oh, like, I have a sandwich you in the fridge, and, like, she's blind, you can't see Then we see at the end she's going to the fridge getting the sandwich. So that was very good, like, tying together. You know what? I didn't even realize that, Mike. That's a great point. That's great. That's great writing. Good work. Good work by the writers. Yeah, these writers are talented as well, and I do think the interesting thing with this show is I like that we have all these action beats. Like, the thing I'm worried about this show is, like, I wonder, like, if episode so they blew their whole budget on episode one. They're going to spend a lot of time sort of like talking through things, not getting as much action as we did in the premiere. I don't need, again, if the writing is good, I don't need a ton of action every single time. I'm not worried about like the special effects and stuff like that diminishing. I'm worried about the storytelling aspect. Are the action moments going to be worth it? Or are they just going to be stunts to keep the action, to keep uh, the audience entertained? Like you need to have the action mean something. That's what maybe I'm a little bit worried about. Yeah, because this is an eight-episode season. We've seen a quarter of it now. It's, it drops weekly on Fridays on Prime. So, like, I think, obviously, it's going to be tough to keep up the pace they had in the premiere the entire time. But I just don't want them to slow it to a crawl, basically. Just stall out until they have their big, like, finale event. Right. I mean, you can't you can't pace this show like uh, House, of, House of the Dragon, where you know people are going to be willing to wait six seasons to get a full story. you got to tell a story, a full one, in this first season in order to have the people engaged and want to continue this big-budget show. Yeah, because this is something where, like, I know Rings of Power was a huge success for them. They got a ton of, like, people in this one. They're using Thursday Night Footballs over Lost Leader Amazon. So, like, this is probably their most creative big bet on this one, where it's not, like, a slam dunk like more of the Rings is. So, like, it's interesting to see how this fares for them. Yeah, do you think 
the boys was a slam dunk when they started. Do you think that's maybe one of their, their biggest bets? I'm just curious to think about it now. There's no way they could have thought that show would be as huge as it is now. And hopefully the peripheral gets to where the boys is. Cause if that's the case, then prime's going to be dancing in their ballroom the entire time. Yeah. The boys, I felt they were just sort of trying to jump in an angle, of the superhero vibe that really hadn't been touched. Yeah. I feel like that was the angle of the boys. That's true. That's true. I would say so. But I mean, the boys is more popular than any Disney show than any Disney plus show, I think. So prime's winning that battle. Yeah, I think this one gave me also a lot of Matrix vibe. I think it's like a good. I would if they can get get pulse on that Matrix tone in here. I think that'd be also interesting here. I think that's a great point as well because when you go into the when you go into the VR world, you have all these athletic abilities that you can never possess. Just like in the Matrix, when you go into the Matrix, yeah. you can do things that you never thought possible as well. Yeah, good point, like, Mike. Yeah, I feel like this is sort of like the I feel like this is sort of like their Matrix like Westworld Dune hybrids that they tried to roll together to make this. Yes, but don't go to Westworld, please. Yeah. Again, like you need to have the action moments mean something. They lost that in Westworld, and they lost a lot of people with it. Like, you just please stay composed with the Westworld. Do not go too big. Yeah, don't go too big, please. So, give me your grade of these two episodes. Like, how'd you feel about it? I'm probably gonna say I'm like a like a B minus B. Again, like uh, I'm not rushing out to to premiere, but. The show, the show entertained me. I didn't stop the episode once I started it. Um, I wasn't immediately excited to watch episode two, but I think they they got the hook in my cheek. Now they just got to reel me in. Yeah, I would say I'm around the same place as you. I feel like this was good. Like, I was entertained. Like, I was not, like, horrendously bad where my, I'm rushing to turn it off, but, like, I'm with you where it's, like, I'm not, like, dying to go to, to – it was, it was, there was a next episode I'd not be clicking on three right away. Right, exactly. It's like, oh, hey, I have nothing to watch on this – Wednesday morning, I'll throw it on. But like, you might miss an episode or two, but then you watch two or three in a row. So you, you but you're gonna finish it. That's the main point is you want to finish it. Yeah, it's like I will finish it. Just, it may not be like on appointment viewing, like on Friday morning, I'll be waking up and saying, "Oh, I have to turn the peripheral on," but I will be getting to it at some point that weekend, most likely. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you're you agree? With it. We'll we'll stick with it, but we're not gonna be. It's not like you like rings of power when it comes on. Like you're gonna watch it first thing in the morning when it comes on. Right, exactly. Yeah, the, we are putting this in our calendar to watch the peripheral, like we did Rings of Power. Yeah, for, yeah, for my equipment, it would be like Andor's in that calendar right now, in terms of like when it comes on, I'll make make an appointment to get on there and watch it as soon as it pops up on Disney Plus. Yeah, I mean, everyone's got those shows. That, and Andor, I've heard fantastic things about. I'll get to it eventually. You're going to yell at me for not watching it yet, but I'll get there eventually. I don't blame you for not watching it because I know this Star Wars fatigue can be real, especially after Obi Wan and Boa Fett were underwhelming. Yes, I agree. But again, I heard that this is nothing like. Boba Fett. That's the one thing I heard. Like it's the opposite of Boba Fett in terms of coolness factor. Like what they were trying to do in the Boba Fett, but actually is an Andor. So I'm excited. That makes me more excited for it. Yeah, I'll I'll give you the pitch on Andor in a minute here, but let's get some other stuff here. So real quick, like in terms of like Andor's of the third show right now in terms of the pop culture, like Zeitgeist. The other two, obviously, House of the Dragon is just wrapped up. Stanko has watched at this point, I believe nine of the ten episodes, not gotten to the finale yet at, as of recording, and he's watched all of Rings of Power, so based on what you've seen, who has had the better season one? For me, it's Rings of Power. Rings of Power is the one that I literally, me and my girlfriend sat down every Friday night. I got home from work and we watched it. That's what we did. So for me, it's Rings of Power. Um, House of the Dragon, though, is still very good. And I really think this comes down to me personally. I know more about Lord of the Rings lore than I do Game of Thrones. So when they're mentioning Morgoth in the Rings of Power, my brain's starting to churn into all these kind of different areas that, like YouTube deep dives I've gone off of. House of Dragon still requires more attention and work to love it so much and to catch all the little things. 
Brain to Power is more of an entertainment viewing experience. And for me, it's also touching those stimulating brain cells. So that's why it's it's prime winning this battle over HBO. Yeah, I would. I feel like that makes some sense. I feel like there's like we clear like stands on both sides of the, of the aisle here, saying you know, like I gotta be Game of Thrones like related content, gotta be the Lord of the Rings related content. But you know what? Both are good. So like, there's no wrong answer here. No, there's no wrong answer. And again, I, you, I'm not gonna gatekeep anyone. Be a fan of whichever one you want. Just you should be watching both, especially if you're a fan of fantasy. Like it's two different ways to approach it, but they're both excellent. Yeah, and I'll get and I also gotta get you here because we were recording like a couple of days after Taylor Swift dropped her new album, and Stanko is a big Taylor Swift fan. So early impressions. Early impressions are it's very good. Um, it has not captivated me like folklore and evermore, but I don't know if anything ever will again. Um, but it's very good. Uh, Mastermind and Maroon are probably my two favorite songs. Um, and they could flip flop back and forth. I don't know. They're both excellent, but I've listened to it every day since it came out. And it came out on the day I proposed to Mike. So I'm going to remember Midnight's forever. Yeah, it's definitely a good timing, too. I remember that one caught me a surprise when they had the big promo on Thursday Night Football with Taylor Swift on it. Al Michaels trying to explain to Kirk Herbstreet, like, who Taylor's, like, a Taylor Swift phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, but she, Taylor Swift is the music industry. Yeah. Like, that that's what she is right now. And for better or for worse, and for me, I'm absolutely loving it. Yeah, before we get to the last thing we're going to do, which is the Hollywood, I'll give you the elevator pitch on why Andor should be your next thing once you have some time here. I know, obviously, you got to finish House of the Dragon, get through that. You did the Game of Thrones, but I feel like the like the Andor thing, it's great, is like, if you, like, all you would say that uh, Ring of Power and House of Dragon are both good examples of prestige TV. Yes, yeah. I would. Andor is a Star Wars equivalent of prestige TV, TV in my opinion. They don't have, like, the, like, there's no, like, it's made for adults. There is... Make, make tremendous character development throughout here. They do not rely on the star, classic Star Wars trope, which is good. I mean, you wait a long time for even see a stormtrooper in this show, which is inc- which is inc- amazing for Star Wars. That's nice. Yeah, a lot of character development. Like they think, I we are through at this point seven episodes as I'm recording here. We have seen literally just the two legacy characters we do coming into the show and one cameo. So like this is all brand new people. They take time to develop these characters. They all have their own storylines. Paid off in episode seven, the great episode where he had about five or six different storylines sort of going together here, and like it all flowed because they did the work to establish these characters. The idea of prestige Star Wars is intriguing. The idea of prestige anything on Disney Plus is intriguing because I don't know if anything really touches that level. But so, all right, how about this? After House of the Dragon, after Thursday night, I'll start Andor. I'll do it for you, Mike, and I'll report back once I once I start watching it. Yeah, I I gotta say because like. The Sky Guys, I've been covering it over there all season long. Like, Nick and I are loving it. Pete Sell says it's very good. Like, I think you're better off coming in late because there are points where, like, the work is slow at times, but, like, it pays off. So, like, they think the show will play better on a binge, actually. All right. Well, that's intriguing. If you can make a show both good on a week-to-week basis and make people anticipate it and be great for a binge, you're in unique territory. So, kudos to Andor based on your recommendation. Yeah, so that's my recommendation to you here, and it is spooky season, so we have we have we cannot like wrap up here. The podcast coming out on Halloween here, so give me your top five like Halloween movies, Stanko. So I put some qualifications on this, Mike, okay. because you have to have rules because you can't have chaos. Yep. So they had to be more horror related than thriller. So that's why Silence of the Lambs or Get Out is not on this list. Uh, they need to be spooky vibes. Doesn't doesn't necessarily need to be around Halloween. It just needs to be spooky vibes mainly in the dark yep and they also gotta scare you a little bit those are my qualifications for this um number one we're starting off with halloween yep it is arguably my favorite horror movie of all time i watch it every single year 
It bore the slasher genre. It's You can watch it if you're a fan of horror movies and appreciate it, or if you're not, and you could laugh at it. It's in that beautiful middle ground of pure entertainment. So Halloween's my number one. Have you seen Halloween, Mike? Yeah, I have. What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on the Michael Myers origin? I mean, it's a classic. You can't go wrong with that as your number one pick in the Halloween draft. It's it's incredible. It's yep. incredible. And also the score is is, is masterful. Yep. Um, number two is actually a movie that is terrifying. It is traumatizing. And you will remember it forever and maybe never want to watch it again. But it's The Exorcist from 1973. This movie will creep you the hell out. It will leave you with scenes that you would never, ever think that were possible. I, I say that and I mean it. The spider walk, if you know what I'm talking about, that'll haunt your nightmares for two weeks. The Exorcist is an all-time classic. It was the first horror movie I saw where horror movies can also be art. Like, they can be made beautifully in the acting and the directing and the cinematography, everything. The Exorcist, all-time classic. Awesome. Um, And then number three, Alien, um, one of the best taglines of all time. In space, no one can hear you scream. I remember seeing the the poster and that tagline where I played seen it with my family. And this movie is so claustrophobic. It'll have you sweating with Lieutenant Ripley. And, and the Xenomorph is born, arguably one of the scariest movie monsters of all time. Ridley Scott, this is an absolute masterpiece in space. I agree. I agree with that. Again, also, like the classic Sigourney Weaver film, too. Oh, I mean, she's the original horror movie badass. Yep. Like, she, she's the woman who survives. Um, we're sticking with space a little bit with arguably my favorite. It's, it's tough. It's tough. John Carpenter, two of my favorite horror movies. We're going with the thing 1982. Uh, I mean, classic human turning on human animals, wreaking havoc on everyone. Nobody can trust anyone. Kurt Russell being cooler than the other side of the pillow. The amb- the ambiguous ending, the blood scene, the inspection tension to the absolute perfection. Uh, the thing is an all time classic with some of the best practical special effects ever. Uh, you got to agree, Mike. This one you have to watch. And you have to appreciate. Oh yeah, I mean, if you're making the classic list, I mean, like just having like I appreciate you're going with some of these older school movies here and not relying on just like stuff that came recently. And the thing is, like a classic, and I do like love the practical effects. I think I'll get to at the end of the podcast when Santa Rosa comes in. We're gonna talk about the Marvel special Werewolf by Night. They did do a lot of practical effects in that as well, sort of an homage to oh, like, the thing and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm a sucker for practical effects. Absolutely sucker for it. Um, and my last one, Mike, I'm a sucker for. Uh, the vibe, yeah. the spooky vibe, the lonely vibe, the I'm going crazy vibe. I'm I'm a sucker for The Shining. Yep. 1980, Jack Nicholson. This movie will be messing with your head the entire time. You will know what's real and what's not. I mean, you're going to see some spooky things, and it's it's truly terrifying. And on a sentimental note, this is the movie that I first uh, asked Emma to watch with me. So. The Shining is an all-time classic in my brain now, and Emma and I watch it. We watch it on Valentine's Day together. So The Shining can be watched anytime, but especially around Halloween. Yeah, I'm glad you brought The Shining out because you you know what we actually watched last year on Halloween? What is that? I watched Doctor Sleep on Halloween last year. Doctor Sleep is good, too. The extended edition, even better. Yeah. I mean, I loved I mean, I loved it. I mean, the, I did, was not going into it like thinking, like, oh, like, The Shining shouldn't be touched. It's like a classic, but, like, Again, Mike Flanagan, like the how like the Halloween patron of this podcast of the Halloween special podcast here. I mean, he does a great job, and I love Ewan McGregor in there as the uh, older Danny. Yeah, and it it was really well done. Um, they definitely they changed the ending a bit from a book, just like The Shining. So I'm not surprised there. Um, but it's a great book and a great movie. Uh, again, I recommend the extended edition because it 
it creeps up on the gore a little bit and the violence that goes into taking taking the shining from the little kids. So really love the extended edition. Yeah, I love how they modernized the hotel too without losing the the feel from the original. Right. And yeah, it makes you feel like you're right there. They literally go shot for shot in some uh, some certain scenes. So it, it's a it's really fun watch. Do a double feature one day. It's snowing outside. You do the shining with Doctor Sleep. Who needs sleep at night after you watch those two? Oh, oh yeah, you can just pull it. That's how you pull it on night. Just watch them both back to back. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And you're and you're scared shitless. You don't want to go to sleep for like five hours. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Or you can be a crazy person and uh, put that let you let you put that to sleep. So I don't know. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there, uh, Stanko. Thanks a lot of time. Really appreciate it. Before I let you go, I'll be able to follow social media. Keep on some of your uh, stuff you're doing. Uh, you can follow me at social at jstanko99 on all platforms. And uh, you can follow my writing at stankostance.com. Absolutely, John. Thanks for all the time. Really appreciate it. Mike, thank you. Always a pleasure and happy Halloween. I'm going to Stanford in the fall. You need to celebrate it. Break a few rules, I think. Just like once in your life. <laughs> Are the odds in my favor? It's not quite that simple. Can you say the real name again, please? Papillary thyroid carcinoma. Thyroid cancer. I'm Dr. Georgina Stanton. Welcome to Brightcliff. Every living day here is a win. How long have you all been here? Uh, four months for me. Five. Three. Three. 63 days, 17 hours, and 11 minutes. You don't know the minutes. I'm, not gonna lie. I'm going to die. All of us here are dying. This is a hospice? My parents told me this was a boarding school. What's in the basement? I dare you. No, he doesn't. It takes a lot to scare me. No, wait, don't. Don't. Don't actually go down there. What is this? It's kind of a club. You guys sneak into the library every night and make ghosts. Tell stories. Make ghosts sounds better. Welcome to your first official night in the Midnight Club. There's so many stories about this place. Stories about people who thought they were going to die but didn't. change the outcome. I don't care what it costs. If there's a way to save us, I'd burn the world down. You need to stop. And don't put yourself and all of us in real danger. To those before, to those after, to us now, and to those beyond. All right, we are back here on the Halloween special here on the Just End the Suffering podcast, our third annual one here. And 
We are continuing today. We're going to dive back into the Flanniverse here as we get ready to break down the the first season of Midnight Club. Might be a second. We'll talk about that in a bit. Joining me today, the guy who helped me break down Midnight last last year. Let's go back. We're not recording at midnight, but Alan Austin's back. Alan, how are you? I am well, Mike. The Flanniverse has become one of my favorite places to visit, so I'm glad we're getting to talk about it yet again here in 2022. Yeah, like the only thing we're missing right now is that we're not in a library at midnight, like drink, like drinking beer or wine, discussing like spooky stories. Oh, for sure. And you know, you know, be, being that we're Giant and Jet fans, over the past couple of years, we would have had many a spooky story to tell, especially uh, adding in tigers and Mets. And it's good that we get to hear some from a Flanagan point of view, which is always my favorite. Yeah, absolutely. Here, in terms of the Midnight Club, before we get into specifics here, a couple of things here. Number one, were you familiar with the original book that this is based on? No, I can't say I was. I uh, When I heard about this product introduced, I had not heard of the source material before, so I came into it with a blank slate. Yeah, so did I. I think it helped out a lot here. And before we go into the spoiler section, I'll put the spoiler one up in a minute here. Give, give us the elevator pitch here. What is the Midnight Club for people who have not watched it yet? Sure. So as spoiler-free as possible, the Midnight Club is a group of teens in a hospice um, where they gather every night at midnight and tell kind of scary stories. But you learn quickly a lot of the stories have a personal touch. And there's an overall through line uh, with the kids themselves. So it's a nice way to get exposition out there, learn about the characters, and kind of move the story forward from there. Yeah, and some of these also do have like a little bit of movie parody vibe in them as well, some of these stories. Absolutely, absolutely. Which makes sense, because this is, I believe, set in, what, 1995, I believe, is the year the, that the show is set in? 94, 95. I, I, I think it was a little vague, but I think mid-90s is the sweet spot. I, actually, it says 94 when it opens, I believe. Yeah, it might be 94, maybe going into 95, and that was this start, yeah, starts that out. Yeah, that right. Like a character is supposed to go to college instead ends up going to this hospice after they get diagnosed with a terminal illness. So, like, we see that sort of maybe as the months progress, we sort of switch to 95. Makes sense. All right. Let's go ahead. We'll go to the spoilers here. You can't really do much more non-spoiler topic here. So, let's go ahead and throw it up in case you have not seen The Midnight Club yet. All right, you can get out if you have not watched this yet. So all 10 episodes are out on Netflix. It dropped October 7th. We watched all 10. And I got to say, this was, I like what Flanagan does every year. There's something different, like, to his horror tunes every year. We got a teen horror show. I thought that was fun. It was fun. And for any audience members looking for the next Midnight Mass, the next Haunting of Hill House, please set your expectations appropriately. This is a show about teens made for a younger audience. So if you dig the Flanagan style of storytelling, this will work for you. But if you're expecting a gruesome horror show, this will not quench your thirst. But I still recommend it highly. I put it more on par. I think it's more like a blind matter kind of situation. I, yeah, I think. And, and maybe my only knock on the show is a lot of contrived scares because there weren't many. If that makes sense. Flanagan, there are so many sudden loud sound jump cues that I think are acting in place of legit scares. So the show's not ultimately scary, but it's still good. And I just think he filled a lot of time with those forced jump scares, maybe more than he needs to. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll talk about this a bit here. I think also part of the problem is I think that 
Mike Flanagan said this show was sort of designed to have a second season, like all of his other projects thus far, where they were one and done. So, like, maybe there was some stuff he's holding off on in case they get a second season. So maybe that's also part of the issue. And they're the, the the ghostly old people would be the the key there. Yeah, the ghostly old people are definitely interesting here, and I did think one of the interesting things here, as you mentioned general, at the top here, we this really centers on a character named Alanka who we meet in the pilot. Basically, she's. A, like a bright young student lives with her foster father. She's getting ready to go to Stanford. She finds out that she's sick and she has cancer. We see that she has this don- prognosis does not go very well. She reads on, does some online research on the dial up internet and finds out about this uh, hospice where someone got miraculously cured. She wants to go there and we'll basically see her meet the people who are there and try and figure out like, if this is a place where she can get a miracle cure for her cancer. Yes, that is the initial, um, you know, jumping off point, and it's from there where we meet the rest of the kids who are in the similar situation with different illnesses and, and ailments, and, and we get to know a couple key characters. The I don't know if he's the head nurse, played by Zach Guilford, and Dr. Stanton, played by horror legend Heather Langenkamp, which was a fun casting choice, and she knocks it out of the park. Yeah, she's great throughout the season. Zach Guilford plays Riley Flynn on Midnight Mass last year. Now he's just a mark. A we found he's a gay nurse practitioner in the '90s, so obviously that's a choice story wise based on like the time period. But like we'll go through some of these kids here. We have Kevin, who is basically like Alanka's closest friend in the group. She has he has terminal leukemia. Anya, her roommate in the group, she has a right lower leg amputation and had bone cancer. Uh, Sandra, the religious one who has terminal lymphoma. Spencer, who has AIDS. Uh, Sherry has wealthy parents. Although they never really told us what she's sick with. Natsuki is depression, internal ovarian cancer, and Amesh, who was the new previous new kid before Alanka shows up, he has glioblastoma. So, like, these are the kids we're sort of working with here throughout the season. And like, a lot of the big central plots here is that we that Alanka finds out that at midnight they all go to the library. They basically have a pack to you know, tell scary stories and that whoever dies first tries to communicate from beyond the grave to send a message to the group about what that is like. So what do you think about like some of these stories we got over the course of the season? So I thought the stories were fun, obviously some were better than others. Um, but the, uh, the, the real arc of this is how we're going to get exposition and know our characters. This was a really fun way of doing it. You know, a lot of shows in recent years, and I would say the first time I ever saw was Lost, was episodes designed for one specific character that still follow the overall arc. This is no different. It does it wonderfully. And of all the individual stories, I would say I really liked, and correct me if I get the character's name wrong, but Becky's. Yeah. Becky's story about, you know, it brings suicide awareness to the forefront and it has a we'll get to this in a bit when we talk about Flanagan cameos but it's got a really stellar cast in that episode and I just think it was a really meaningful message message especially for the target audience so I really that one stood out to me um a couple of the rest were a little convoluted and I think were a little, it could have been cleaned up a bit. I think that was probably the most solid of the individual Midnight Club stories. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that one was fun. Kevin's we'll talk about because he basically sort of threads it over, I think, like three or four episodes because he has a thing where he doesn't want to finish it. We'll talk about that in a bit here. 
Spencer, Spencer's story, basically, it's a Terminator parody. Like, he goes into, like, oh, that one I thought was fun. A Mesh's story I liked a lot. I Another cameo sort of plot there. And Awaka's continues over a couple things. I, Omni's and Sanders are kind of forgettable, in my opinion, to the stories. Anya's and who's? Uh, uh, Sandra's. Yeah, Sandra's was meant to be in the light of her naivety, her innocence. It was it was supposed to be a little bit more softer because she doesn't have the edge that the others had, and it was like a gumshoe, like private eye noir parody. It was fine. Um, I thought the Spence one had a convoluted ending uh, that that finished too cleanly, too quickly. There were just, you know, the stories weren't perfect, but I'm willing to excuse that with the intention of it being, these are not professional storyteller kids telling stories. I'm willing to excuse it for the most part. The one thing I also think is fun with these stories too is that like as the kids are telling them that they're basically the main characters of their stories, then the other actors who play the kids are basically playing supporting characters in the stories. So I think that's also fun Love to, that. Have, to have them basically show diff- that. all these diff- talented young actors with different aspects of like what they can do. Absolutely. It was a blast. That that part of it was a blast. And, I, you know, going back to Kevin's story, for the horror fans out there, that's probably the most horrific in terms of gore, in terms of scary. That's the one that will probably stand out the most to some horror people. I think it will, too, here. Let's talk about, like, in terms of these kids, like, who popped the most to you? Who was the most interesting, the most interesting teen characters? I got to say... First and foremost, the casting as a whole was stupendous. Like, kudos to the team that put together this group because they are all wildly talented. They are all believable. Obviously, Alanka has the most to do, but I really enjoyed the performances across the board. I, I, I liked the growth of the characters, and these young actors really sold it. Uh, if I had to pick one, you know, the, the Anya character who... I, you know, couldn't stand the first couple episodes. And then by episode seven, it's like, I need more Hanya. Like, just a wonderful performance by that actress. And again, across the board, just wonderful performances. Yeah, I mean, they all have to do. I think Anya, I think, is sort of like the best pick because like she has a journey throughout the season that I think is a lot of fun here. Spencer, I think, I think they all sort of have their own unique storylines too, which they do a good job throwing through these episodes here. I mean, like Spencer has the issue where he's trying to like, get his mother to accept the fact that he's gay and that's why he got AIDS. We have Natsuki and Amesh, like whether they have a relationship or not, like that's sort of going on back and forth. Kevin has a situation like where like he has a girlfriend for like from before he was sick and he's trying to thread that with really having feelings for Alonka. There's a lot of stuff going on here. A lot of great young points. Like uh, maybe I'm not articulating that correctly. Things that high schoolers and a little bit older young college age people go through really well represented here, at least in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely here. And I do think let's talk like in terms of episodes here. What was the highlight? I feel like there's one clear episode that stands out from all the rest. So I think you and I would agree that it's episode seven, which is wonderful. I would say specifically the first 20, 25 minutes of episode seven are fantastic i would say that's probably the strongest stretch of the series and it's a good series but i would say episode seven which is anya's it opens after they try the ritual and it's got anya in a new reality so to speak i would say that was the strongest 
storytelling and, and just it was just the strongest bit of the series, in my opinion. Yeah, it's a very six feet underish episode where basically you basically leave the assumption that like Anya is like living through a, a normalish life where she's like got a job, she's got like an apartment, and like she's you know trying to she's only like a support group. She basically tells people, like, oh, like all my friends died to save me. And then we have it flipped on twenty minutes in where we find out that Anya's in a coma and she ends up dying where everybody else tried to save her. So I think that was a very fun like concept and the way the actress Ruth Kai played it. That was very good. And a heartbreaking reveal that she is in the, you know, the, the, the terminal baby, if you will, that is already shown us that if you're in that spot, it's not going well. So a heart, heart wrenching reveal. And I, you know, obviously this show bleeds into what could be a season two. She's the character that they unfortunately lose in this season and uh, I'm not saying it's necessarily the last we'll ever see of her, but what a, a, I would say a, a performance to put Ruth Cotton on the map for sure. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, we do obviously, I mean, we do lose, I think, a unspe- like a v- barely seen character early in the season, like uh, Tristan, who was like, who dies, I think, like episode three. But like for this show to work, like one of the kids had to die. And I think they made the right choice in terms of like having an impact on the rest of the cast. Completely agree. And it was my biggest complaint about, which I love the new Stranger Things season, but to not have one of the main kids like the dust, I felt like it was a bad choice. Uh, you got to have the stakes. You can't just keep killing off new characters. And while this show has the benefit of all the characters being new, they took care of one of the leads in a way that was both gratifying as an audience member and in a storytelling perspective. Yeah, because, I mean, you're referring to specifically people, I'm assuming, have watched or anything at this point. If not, you're in the spoiler section anyway. I mean, like, they should have just killed Max off at that point. Like, what they did made no sense. I completely agree. And, and you know, it's, it could be a case where Max isn't alive, and she will just be an avatar for the bad guy. I forget his name at the moment, but you know what I mean. But, you know, they, if, they, if they actually pulled the trigger and, and killed off that character, Going into the next season, it's like anything can happen. But now it still feels like all the kids are protected and the stakes are limited. Yeah, let's go to sort of the main sort of storyline going on here, too, where we have basically Alonka's trying to find some information about what's going on and how she can get herself cured. She tells a story to the Midnight Club based on Julia Jane, and then she goes in the woods, meets this woman named Shasta, played by Samantha Sloyan, who was famously bad in Midnight Mass, and... She basically finds out that this is basically, I remember you said last year that Midnight Mass is the under, undercover uh, vampire show. This became the undercover pagan show. Yeah, and, and honestly, to me, it's the weakest storyline of the show. Um, anytime they cut to Alonka in the forest talking to the woman, I, I it's not that I tuned out. I just wanted to get back to the group. Um, that through line, albeit what's going to carry us into season two, always felt like, it, it was just extra. And yet that's the A plot. But, you know, that was fine. I get it. Anytime you see uh, Samantha, how do you pronounce her last name? I think Sloyan. Sloyan, you know bad news is coming. Like, you know things are going off the rails. Um, she will be back for season two if they're granted one for sure. And that, see, that part, like, there are times where Alonka's this bright, bright girl, but she doesn't realize that this woman like i know she's hopeful this is uh, the, the woman she was seeking out from the beginning but 
creeping around in the woods and having a cult-like group, that should have been a red flag for a girl like Ilanka. So I wasn't completely sold on that storyline, albeit the performances were great. Yeah, the, and the big twist of the season was that you and I both like pegged as like in like episode four ish. We sort of figured out around this point that like uh, Samantha Solian is actually playing grown up Julia Jane, who at the time claims that like you know like her whatever ritual she performed like helped cure her cancer, and she offers to help Alanka do this while they try for Anya doesn't work. And then we see at the end that she tries to basically kill like four of her sisters to like like uh, in the cult to basically get like preserve her treatment here and like. That did like go like really off the rails. A little off the rails, and 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 the other prediction which you and I did not speak of, but I had was that uh, the doctor, Heather uh, Langenkamp, is the daughter of Athena, the main cultist from that Jessica Jane. Is it Jessica Jane or Julia Jane? Julia Jane. Julia Jane. Sorry, I'm so bad with names these yeah. days. Unforgivable, but. I I had the feeling that that was the daughter, which was kind of revealed to be true in the finale as well. Yeah, it was for sure. And I do think it's an interesting point here because we, a lot a big theme in the last couple episodes is that like when they're creeping around the building at night, Alanka overhears Doctor Stan basically saying, "Oh, like someone's not terminal. Like they're gonna be able to go home." And she assumes it's her and the ritual worked, and it's not. It's Sandra who like the one like the the religious one, and we find out that it was just a misdiagnosis, which Doctor Stanton claims like. That's what happened with Julia Jane, that she was misdiagnosed. That's why she's better, not the fact that, like, she did some pagan ritual and cured her. Yeah, that was, um, a, that, I, a, here's the thing. They revealed that Langenkamp's character, Dr. Stanton, has ties to the cult. But I don't think she's a bad person. I think that's going to be a little bit of a red herring going into season two. She seems legit. She seems genuine. And if you recall, the lore, the daughter kind of, you know, exiled from the mother because of different beliefs, but not before she was tattooed on the back of the neck. So I do think Stan is a good person and will be the adult leader going to season two to help whatever group is battling the quote unquote bad guys. Yeah, that's for sure here. And let's talk about some of the horror stuff here, because obviously Kevin's story has a bit of it because it's about serial killers basically being possessed by a spirit. And we really see some ghosts kind of around this thing. We see like the man, the mirror, who is really the creepy guy and like, the old woman who we find out at the end of the season are the founders of the of the of the estate where the hospice is and we get like the death shadow thing we sort of see that get like it's creeping up on Anya when she's about to die and I think I believe uh Amesh sees it a little bit towards the end of the season what do you think about some of the horror stuff I, I I the Kevin stuff was such a brutal contrast that I thought it really worked yeah um you know it, it's gory without being too too jarring like the, the images are shocking they are scary but it's not like the church scene in midnight mass yeah like you're not sitting there going i'm i can't watch this anymore it's brutal but it's relatively tame i'd say and you know i say that and then someone watches it and they're completely grossed out but the 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 ghostly stuff I, I just feel like we never got a conclusion, so I'm going to withhold my opinion on it because I feel like that's going to be a major part of season two, you know. And and I just think that until we get a resolution there, I don't know what to make of it. I didn't find it scary. Again, they used a lot of loud sound cues to kind of guise the fact that it was just an old woman ghost. Um, so I'm not a hundred percent sold on that yet, but I'm open to see where it's going. But I found the horror stuff with Kevin 
to be great. And, and uh, you know, the horror within some of their stories, like the Becky one, uh, was great. And I also like that, you know, Spence's and Amesh's stories were way more sci-fi based. Yeah. I, and, you know, it was a little contrasting, and I liked the variety. Yeah, it was a good variety, too. I did also like that the, like, like we see, like, the shadow with the fingers reaching out to the kids, like, they were about to die. Like, that was very clever because it's sort of metaphorical, but you can sort of see maybe like some of these kids are like, oh, that their time is coming to an end. Right. And I, I did take that, that aspect as metaphorical. I never thought that was an actual spirit. I thought that was just kind of like symbol, some symbolistic of death, symbolic of death. And I could be wrong, but I, I thought it was a nice touch. Again, it just wasn't super scary, but for horror elements, I thought they worked. Yeah, absolutely. Here, let's talk about, the fun here, whenever Flanagan is here, we have a lot of his cameo uh, actors that he collaborates that pop up in cameos here. Obviously, we have some fun ones here, like Rahul Coley as a, is popped up in a story. Henry Thomas and Alex Esso both pop up in stories here. Did you know about the just pure audio cameos that are like in like one of, in Anya's episode that did, did not get published on the wiki or whatnot? No, please tell. Yeah, apparently, like remember when Anya is watching the TV show, like when she's in her apartment. The Law and Order's parody. Yep. Uh, two of the voice actors in that in that uh, show are Hamish Linklater, who plays the priest on Midnight Mass, and Kate Seagor are two of the voice actors in that. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, that's a fun one. I, I went back because he said they're in there. You, don't, you have to find them, and I did find them. That's great. That's hilarious. That, that's quite a nice touch. Sure. So I, I, I can't say those are my favorites since I just found out about them, but... Alex Essa and Henry Thomas, I thought, were fantastic in their cameos. Just really wonderful. Uh, really, really slam dunk. And, and obviously, Guilford's more than a cameo. He's a featured player. But I thought he was really, really good in this. A light touch, much different than Midnight Mass, much different than his character from Friday Night Lights, Matt Saracen. Just a really pleasant time watching. And it, it really could have gone that he's the pretending to be nice creepy guy which is where i thought it was going but no it holds strong he's genuine he's there for spence and the kids i really liked his performance but cameo wise i would say the two drifters if you will were the real highlight yeah i also liked i, I love when rahul coley pops up in a mesh in a, a mesh's story he's basically older mesh and he's like going back in time to help himself like avoid like killing, like the like uh, killing the younger version Natsuki in the stories. Who we call her Becky in that one? So I think that was fun as well. He's a fantastic actor. It feels like he can do nothing wrong. He's just so on point. His deliveries are fantastic. He's a joy to watch. I enjoyed him as well. Yeah, a couple other cats I mentioned here for the audience who may have not missed this here. Uh, Tim, who is. Uh, the stepfather of Alanka in this one. He's actually stirred from Midnight Mass, so he's a fun one that you see pop up here as well. I'll also mention here that uh, Sandra is the, the actress who plays Sandra, played the girl at Midnight Mass who has the miracle perform and can walk again. So like, she's also an, another returner. One of the two survivors of Midnight Mass. Yeah, the kid who plays Kevin is the other survivor. <laughs> you know what's so funny is it's been a year since Midnight Mass, I didn't even pick up on that. Like that Kevin was that kid. So I'm just, it's been a long year, I guess. Yeah, it's been a long year here and let's go ahead here. Let's sort of, sort of wind this down here a bit because we obviously talk about the ending a little bit in detail, but basically we find out that Sandra is going home. She leaves the hospice. 
Uh, Kevin breaks up with his girlfriend and is in a relationship with Alanka. Amesh is getting worse, and it sounds like he might not make it long into season two if we get there. And then we see, get the reveal about who the ghosts are and that Dr. Langenkamp had, I, has some sort of like illness and is a related to the club. So what would you think about that? I thought it was great. It kind of revealed to me that Dr. Stanton it, has used the ritual herself yeah. or has made a deal with the homeowners. Some, something's going on there that, you know, while I think she is a good person, she probably had to take a shortcut herself, if you will. Um, the breaking up of the girlfriend was such a good touch, and it mirrored Kevin's story not finishing because he's afraid of ending things and hurting people. It was a great, great storytelling arc. Um, that was a nice finale. I think we're going to get more of, what's the rich girl's name? Shari? Uh, Sherry. Sherry, we're going to get more of her backstory in season two. I think she's really going to jump up to a more of a primary character. And the Amesh stuff was heartbreaking. And my first thought was he's going to pass away in season two. At least go blind and be able to see things that others can't while he's blind since they were teasing that. So I'm very much looking forward to his character's journey as unfortunate as I think it may go. But from the storytelling, I think it's going to be fantastic. I thought it was a rather satisfying finale. And I think everything was pretty earned and laid. The groundwork was laid. Nothing was completely out of the blue. And I thought it was, uh, I thought it was a successful finale that made me want a season two. Yeah, so it was interesting, too, that we got from closure of the Anya story as well, because she dies in episode seven. Then in episode 10, her friend Rhett comes by, I think I saw her belongs, and he sees the ballerina statue that Anya had been working on here, and that she had broken the leg off of it when she got when she had her leg amputated, because obviously, like, she felt depressed that she couldn't do it, but it's been miraculously fixed. And Alaka said it wasn't like that when she was alive. So that's our sign from the beyond that Anya is communicating with the group. Which was a great reminder that that was a talking point yeah you know it was uh it was a very nice touch i really like that a lot as well as we'll hear and mike flying has said also publicly that he wants to continue the story in season two he promised that answers are coming it's stuff he has put aside for season two which is interesting because haunting a hell house haunting a blind matter and midnight mass were all sort of one and done stories here what do you think about season two here i think it's interesting because obviously this building's going to be there and they've shown that they're willing to sort of like cycle new kids in, cycle some of the old kids out as their illnesses progress to their ends, unfortunately. I think there's a lot to work with here. They want to go back to this. I think it's a great idea. I think there's a lot to work with in this world, and not even with the overall arc of the house and the ghosts, which isn't my favorite, but just cycling kids through. And I don't mean cycling like they die and once replace them, but just having new stories, new representation, new characters, this could be a gigantic show, and I hope it is, because this is very, while the subject matter is very heavy, very sad, it's also very helpful. And I think it's a necessary show. I think it's a necessary story. And I think it's just a wonderful, wonderful representation of youth culture. And I really hope the show takes off, because I really think it can only help and be entertaining along the way. Absolutely. Here. Let's let's sort of put this in, in perspective because obviously now Netflix has embraced the Flyniverse. I mean, you watch their, you check the tells you they call this the Flyniverse. We have four shows in right now, which is Blind, which is obviously Hill House, Bly Manor, Midnight Mass, and this. So, where do you think this one ranks? Sure. And let me preface this with: I enjoy all four of them immensely. Yep. There's not a week 
piece in the bunch. So this ranking is purely on my enjoyability and my fandom. But again, Mike Flanagan is probably one of my top three director-writer combinations going today. I'm a huge fan. So I am going to unfortunately put Midnight Club fourth out of the four Netflix shows. But again, it is a high recommendation, especially for those with young kids and kids alike. Maybe not under the age of 12, but definitely enjoyable for for a large group of people who probably need these kind of stories to be told. You know, it's it's a very needed topic. And and the rest of the rankings would be Bly Manor 3, Hill House 2, Midnight Mass 1. Midnight Mass was my favorite show of 2021. Yeah, I think I'm with you that it's four, but it's not a bad thing because these are four very good shows. And also I think the factor that it's not a complete story yet also because this is really just one season of a show show that Flying intends to go multiple seasons. It's one season, and I I, I do have to acknowledge that it is a show made for teens. So it's not going to hit me in some way. While it hit me, this messaging, the story they're telling, and I enjoyed it immensely, the scares weren't, the horror wasn't where the others were. Even by manner, in retrospect, had a couple more scares and was probably a little scarier for someone like me. So that's why it ultimately ranks fourth, but a definite must-watch, in my opinion. Yeah, that's for sure. And I got to mention also earlier, I just remember here, another voice cameo in that uh, drama scene was Carlo Gugino was in there as well. She is awesome. And, you know, you know, we always talk about people being reused by directors. You have Scorsese and DiCaprio. You have, you know, all these combinations that always go back with each other. And there's a reason. People like working together. When you're on a tight schedule, when you need to bang stuff out and you know you're going to get the performances you need out of actors you've worked with, you're going to go back to them. So I love the fact that he works with people he trusts and likes. And it's kind of that Adam Sandler-y, if I like you, if I can rely on you, I'm going to put you to work and and we're going to make some magic. So I love this group, this ensemble, you know, this troupe that Mike Flanagan has has concocted. And it's just every year, uh, this group is just so much fun to watch. I, I am the biggest Flanagan fan, I tell you. Yeah, absolutely here. And we, we got another Flanagan show next year. Not season two of this yet. That has not been picked up yet. But they the show coming out here, The Fall of the House of Usher is coming next year from Flanagan. It's like a mini series here based on the short based on works of Edgar Allan Poe. So this is something I know Sandra Rosa a few years ago on the podcast mentioned like she would love to see them flying going to Edgar Allan Poe direction and he's going to here. Yeah, I'm I, I, I'm staying away from the source material. I haven't read any posts since I heard the announcement because I'm not quite sure what they're going for. But uh, you know, I'm not the biggest Poe aficionado anyway, so this will be relatively new for me. I'm excited. The cast is—it's not even like cameos. All the big players are there, like throwing a Mark Hamill. It, it should be electric, and I, I wish we didn't have to wait as long as we do because I'm ready. Yeah, I'll give the rundown here. Some of the recurring characters who are going to pop up in this show, like recurring actors who pop up in this show here. Obviously, Carl Giugino is in it. Samantha Sloyan is in it. Rahul Coley, Henry Thomas, Tania Miller, who was a big star in Bly Manor, Kate Siegel, Zach Guilford is, is going to be in this, along with some of the kid actors from the teenage actors from this show as well. I mean, Aya Furukawa plays Natsuki is going to be here. Ruth Codd, who played Anya, is going to be here. Uh, it 
Igby Rigney, who plays Kevin, is going to be here. I mean, they got a lot of fun uh, people here. Long Annabeth Gish, who was memorably in uh, Hill House. Uh, Midnight Mass. Oh, she wasn't there, too, and, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, uh, one more cameo that I love from this season of Midnight Club is Robert Longstreet. Yeah. He is becoming one of those guys that when I see my eyes light up, I think he's fantastic. And, you know, he was in Halloween Kills, which was, you know, another story for another day. But just one of those guys that when I see him on screen, I'm like, oh, baby, let's go. And he plays a nice, he plays the type of role that was common in horror movies to get character actors a chance. So like the mysterious janitor, the mysterious caretaker, like, you know, it, it was a great little cameo from an actor I really have started to, to really like. And he's become a, an Alan Pines, Alan Austin guy quickly, for sure. Yeah, two other names I'll throw out here in terms of the new cast. I, I like, obviously, Bruce Greenwood is the sort of the lead in this thing as Roderick Usher. Carl Lumbly is going to be in this show as an investi- investigator, C. August Dupin. And Mark Hamill's character description a character surprisingly at home in the shadow. That sounds like a lot of fun for him. Oh, for sure. And Bruce Greenwood was, he worked with Flanagan in Gerald's Game. Yeah. He was one of the leads in Gerald's Game, which if you haven't seen it and you want to, make sure you're in the right headspace. That's all I can say. Yeah. Absolutely. So the Flanagan stuff, Dr. Sleep also, what an amazing movie. Just uh, this guy. Please go watch Midnight Club out there. Yeah, definitely go watch Midnight Club, Alan. Thanks a lot of time. Really appreciate it. Before I let you go, I'll you follow you on Twitter if they want to hear some of your uh, other thoughts on things. <laughs> sure. You're going to see a lot of cat videos. It's <laughs> at, at Alan, A-L-L-E-N, underscore, Austin, underscore. All right, Alan. Thanks for all the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. It was a pleasure. We are back here on the Marvel portion of the Halloween Pop Culture Party Podcast as we are talking about the Marvel Halloween special, Werewolf by Night, about an hour on Disney+. Plus. Join me today to help me break it down, the pop culture correspondent of this podcast. Sandra Rose is here. Sam, how are you? I'm so excited to be back. Thanks for having me. Our files, an annual tradition on the holiday special. We got every, all of our pop culture team is here. I mean, we hear, we talked to John Stank already about the peripheral. We talked to Alan Austin about the Midnight Club. Now we're going to get a little Marvel action. I mean, I'm just honored to be mentioned with Stanko and everybody. Like, literally, Alan and Stanko are the best. So I'm just happy to be here, to be honest. Yeah, well, I mean, as long as Mike Flag is making Halloween show, like holiday season, Halloween spooky season shows, gonna, this thing is going to be an annual tradition here. So. We know we'll be back in next season because uh, the, the House of the Usher is coming from Mike Flanagan next year. Oh, it's very exciting. Yeah, it is very exciting here. I'm very excited about this Marvel special, Werewolf by Night, one hour, about some brand new characters here, about a like a little bit of like a classical like uh, horror story here, like a little bit like not as much jump scary as some of the stuff we've seen here. What do you think about this thing? I was very hesitant in watching this until you're like, 
hey, like, let's check this out. I'm like, all right, Mike. And I kind of, I'm very happy you suggested it because I actually, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I thought it was a lot of fun. And if you have not seen it already, I'm going to recommend that you stop what you're doing, go watch it, come back. Cause I mean, it's not really a big plot sort of thing in terms of Marvel because it doesn't really tie to anything else. But like in general here, give you the two sec, basically the brief summary version is basically is like the character follows the death of Ulysses bloodstone. You get five experience, five uh, bounty hunters, monster hunters, including this guy named Jack Russell are summoned by Ulysses widow to, compete for a hunt to find the lead to come to the leader who gets the bloodstone, which is the big gem that he used in this thing. Uh, Ulysses estranged daughter shows up. She teams up with Jack. And then we find out that Jack is a werewolf and he tries to claim the stone. He gets basically repelled by it. They try to kill him. Elsa ends up saving him and he spares her life at the end. Man thing is in this thing, but it goes on the name of Ted. And that's basically it. It was a lot of fun though. Good vibes. Yeah, um, my thing that I really enjoyed about this was, like, if you don't, like, classic film, um, super random for, like, literally any listener, uh, in the right-hand corner, there is a circle, a very bright white circle, and if you pay attention throughout the episode, they, 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 like, flash it very fast. It goes, like, right, if you're watching our Zoom version, I guess, or our YouTube version, uh, it's right in the right-hand corner where my hand is. Uh, when they flip the scene, it's like, so the person who is doing the film of the movie theater will change the film canister. And I liked that a lot. And I know I'm very being very specific right now, but I thought that was like a very nice little like editing touch for the whole thing. Yeah. Stuff like that. I like between that, the choice to do it in black and white for most of this thing with the exception. I think the one exception most is that the bloodstone is red. You can see that. And then everything else is black and white. I thought really added to the atmosphere of it and i love that the job that michael giacchino did i don't know if you know he's the director like do you know if you know some of his work i am not very familiar with names i'm a faces kind of gal yeah so anyway michael giacchino is like a actually like a famous composer like for tv and stuff he, he's the guy who does the themes for loss is primarily he's done that he's worked with like with dalen off on watchman i think he did the score for that so he's his first real stab in the director's chair i thought he did a good job here Oh, wow. Yeah, no, that's great. I'm, I'm a fan of his previous work for composing and everything. Yeah. So I thought this was, it was a very nice, like, homage to the monster movie. Yeah. yeah. Did you enjoy the like the fact that you got black and white in this in the entire thing? It's like, this is not something you usually see nowadays. Exactly. And it just felt like it was kind of like paying tribute to our, you know, past monster movies from like, you know, the olden times, I guess, is the best way to phrase it. Yeah. You have a lot had that lot of feel like with the, you know, interactions in the dark. You see the textures they emphasize very well here. I did like the performance of uh Gael Garcia Bernal like uh Bernal, who plays Jack Russell, aka the werewolf. I did think mm-hmm. he, he his performance was a lot of fun. Yeah, he was giving a lot of taika uh vibes. Yeah. I don't know if you got that as well. A L- little bit. I had fun with Ted. Ted was great. Uh, yeah, Ted was amazing. He, yeah. was, I mean, when they first, I'm not going to lie to you, when they were first like, just call him Ted. Like, he's an old friend. And I'm like, uh, this kind of like pulled me away. Like, this was probably like the part where I was like, uh, Marvel, I, I get it. But also like, this is kind of like a, like a lame joke or whatever. But I'm not going to lie to you. Ted really did it for me. 
He was amazing. Yeah, the character Ted is actually man thing. He's like a famous cop, but probably the most famous in this whole thing. So I thought it was fun, mm-hmm. fun way for them to sneak him in here that he's the monster they're hunting. He has the bloodstone attached to him. Yes, um, the whole bloodstone, you know, idea is very interesting to me. I haven't read this because it's based on the comic, correct? Yeah, it's it's all these are all comic characters that are in here. Yes, so I haven't read these, so this is a very new, like, uncharted category for me. Yeah, I did enjoy it because, like, again, like, I'm not as deep in the comics as some other people who I talk to here. And, like, for me, it's just, like, oh, it's a brand new experience. And I, like... Yes. I, I, like, like had this work, dude. Obviously, I I know none of these characters. I haven't, like, there's no, like, no Ant-Man showing up or anything like that. No random, like, fifth character from She-Hulk is in this thing. But, like, I... I watched this. I was like, you know, they did a good job establishing these characters and sort of like setting up who we need to care about, who was the good guys, who the bad guys. They did a good job just in about 50 minutes sort of setting up a nice story for you beginning to end. Exactly. But the other like bounty hunters, monster hunt- hunters, they seemed like familiar though. Like, so like some of them felt like it could have been from different worlds in the Marvel universe that we've seen already. I don't know if you've got that, but I felt like they all the characters seemed familiar. Yeah, they definitely feel like you would see them pop up in something else and more like, oh, I can see why they're here. And then, of course, spoiler alert, they all pretty much die except for uh, Jack Jack and uh, Elsa, who is uh, well, Ulysses' daughter. I thought that this was definitely a lot of fun. And I did get the Marvel sense of it. Like, I felt like you did get a lot of the, like, Marvel humor, I thought, at points. Especially Tag was a big deal with the humor. I did, like, also had some good one-liners in there. Yes. And... At some points, like, I, again, I'm sure they went for a specific feeling, a specific, like, whatever, but it got a little too marvely. if I know that's a word that I've made up, but I feel like it got a little too lighthearted in yeah. some points. Like, if they're trying to make this a monster movie, it kind of, like, lost its path a little bit. Yeah, I was about to ask you that, because, like, obviously, like, this is Marvel's attempt at, like, this is our Halloween special. I know that they have one coming for the holidays at Guardians of the Galaxy, which I'm sure we'll probably talk about at some point down the road with this. And that's coming yeah. Disney Plus in December, like you know, November or December here. But I think like they had the vibe right. I do think when they tried to go to Marvel humor, it did take me out a little bit. Yeah, I mean, like I really was following them up until like some of those like asides where it felt like it was a Marvel movie, and I'm like. I get it, but you had the chance to, like, rebrand a little bit, and you kind of lost it. You did kind of lose it a little bit. I did overall enjoy it, though, and, like, it's curious. I was the end, the end of this thing, like, Jack Jack escapes the uh, dimension that they are hiding in to do the hunts, and I did think, like, the vibe of the hunt where they had the maze set up, where everybody sort of wandered through the maze trying to find the monster. I thought that was pretty cool. Gave you good opportunities to, like, see people, like, ambush each other and, like, have, uh, that was probably your best avenue for the jump scares was those was the maze in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. Like the whole thing with like even going before where they were inside the house with those monsters, they were all like classic looking monsters like from the sixties, the fifties, the forties, and I don't know, like the maze kind of like added to that. And I don't, I know it's very like specific of me. But I thought it was, like, a very cool, I don't know. I also just, like, when he was just talking to Ted, and he was just like, hey, I can't keep saving you all the time. It was, like, very, it was very cute. I, like, I really enjoyed it. Like, that part, I, like, 
oddly enough, enjoyed a lot. I also enjoy the fact there was a lot of practical effects of this thing. Like when we first see like the like the mannequin version of Ulysses Bloodstone and he's after he's dead and they're cranking the thing to make him talk. Like that was creepy as hell. It was so creepy with the freaking like stitches on his head where yeah. they like, you know, had to do surgery on it yeah. for him to move and yeah. like add in a voice box. Like that was that was crazy. But I weirdly enough enjoyed it in the same breath. Like, I did like also that this was not a big CGI fest where it was, like, everything is CGI. Like, especially when, like, we have Jack transforming into the werewolf that we don't, like, see this awful CGI of him turning the werewolf. We just sort of, like, see from Elsa's perspective and we flip back. He's, yes. he's the werewolf. I thought I like that. Yes, they had a lot of very good usage of, like, imagery. We're using lights and, like, shadows through the, throughout the entire special. It was very – that was probably my favorite part of the entire special was the use of like old school kind of like transitions and use of light and use of dark. Um, that was, that was a big part for me. It plays very well with the black and white. So I said, make us not pop even more. Yeah. And it, you know, it, it speaks to why they kept with the black and white. Yeah. I did do some research on this. So interviews of Michael Cicchino. Basically he said that like his inspiration is basically like a Marvel version of the twilight zone was basically his take on this, on this special. So I could definitely see that. Oh, 100%. Now that you mention it, it, sound, it feels just like a Twilight Zone episode. Yeah, because the way you say is like, I wanted to just drop you in. This sort of like a day in the life of these two. You see like a little bit what's going on. I don't need to give you the full backstory. You can figure it out on your own. I, thought, I appreciate that. I did too. That's amazing. I think that Marvel taking this kind of route is much better than kind of what they've been doing as of late. Yeah, absolutely here. And the question I also have here, like, and you know, this is the Marvel Cinematic Universe where everything is connected and all fits together. Do you think we see anybody from this again? Do you think this is just, okay, we're here and we're see what's going on. Then we leave. I'm sh I did like the characters like in this, what was it? 40 or 54 minutes, 53 minutes, right. Yeah. Of the whole thing. Yeah. I did end up really liking some of the characters, which I think it says a lot for the writing and the directing, like everything. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we're going to see them again, though, truly. Like, I really feel like this is like a one and done. Marvel has so many comics. They have so many storylines, so many characters that they can keep doing things like this. Yeah, I would be not surprised if Man-Thing, aka Ted, showed up again. I feel like that character could be pop up in something where, like, I mean, we're... It, <laughs> We're going to show where She-Hulk brought Abomination back into our lives, so I would not be surprised yeah. to see, see Ted, a.k.a. Man-Thing, in something in the future. I would, if anything, I would be okay with seeing Ted again, but basically just Ted. Like, because yeah. it's like Ted and Jack, like, their paths cross. Like, they cross one way, and then after years, their paths cross again. So I feel like it's going to be, like, an interchangeable thing where we might not see Jack even for, like, a decade, let's just say, you know. And then we just see him briefly in another Marvel show, just again, briefly. But I don't know. I feel like they they could do it. I kind of hope they don't. Yeah. But then again, I do love Ted. Not going to lie. Yeah, Weirdly I, enough. I mean, there's so much stuff going on with like, this whole, like, they're doing multiverses thing. I could see them, like, even it's like that what if show made, like, uh, Ted's in, Jackson episode of that. I could see something like that happening. Yeah, like something small. Like, yeah. I guess that's true. I'm kind of like being a hypocrite right now. Like, they could show up very briefly, but I don't think they're going to be a main part of the Marvel storyline. I mean, Daredevil will show up in She-Hulk, so anything could happen there. That's very true. I did really enjoy She-Hulk. 
I mean, Daredevil taking the walk of shame and She-Hulk was hysterical. Yes, that was very funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's going to be a lot of fun here. And that's had some fun here. Give me who is the best character in this thing? Who is the MVP of Where Up by Night? Okay, we've been talking about him all evening. Ted. Yeah. He just came out of nowhere with his yeah. little little eyes of anger. And then, oh, okay. And then he, you know, became the real MVP when he saved Elsa. Like, you know, and then the whole sushi thing. You didn't understand a word he said, but he was hilarious. Yeah, he still saved their bacon, too. So, so Ted should get a lot of credit. Honestly, um, there's no debate on how Ted is in the MVP. Yeah, I'll give I'll give it to uh, Elsa here because like she has like a lot to prove when she shows up because basically she's the estranged daughter and then the oh she tells the other hunters like why are you here like you're not a hunter you don't belong here and she ends up walking away basically like right case of kicking all their asses and ensuring that the bloodstone is in I think she has control at the end of the end of the movie so good job for her yeah I'm you know going back to what we just discussed I'm not gonna be surprised if we see her again though like really thinking about it now. I feel like something is like getting that little brain of mine all fuzzy. And I'm like, I wonder if we're going to see her again. So I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, like she's in the play. She's in, like, uh, if the way I describe sort of like with star Wars too, is a little bit like she's in the toy box. Now you can like play with like that character yes. again. So if you want to. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Who was like, the worst character in this thing? Who's the LDP? Uh, could I, I cannot pronounce her stupid name, but her, the stupid stepmom. She was so annoying. I literally hated everything that she stood for every time she was on the screen bothered me even when i didn't know who she was like the viscera or whatever her name uh, was verusa yes oh my god like, literally i'm not gonna lie to you i did not bother to learn her name that's how much i hated her yeah i'm gonna give yeah i, I agree with that i was gonna I'll, I'll honorable mention the other bounty hunters who really added nothing to the story other than just being cannon fodder yeah also not so one of the bounty hunters looked like he came from uh what the heck is that place from the Black Panther? Oh, I just literally had it. Wakanda? Wakanda. He looked like he came from Wakanda. Like, all of them looked like they came from somewhere in the universe. But that, like, the woman alien-looking thing, yeah. where she got the sword in her head, Yeah. he was also an LVP for me. Yeah. I was just like, what? I feel like you just barely even made a dent in this. Like, at least the Scottish guy, who reminded me of somebody from Guardians of the Galaxy, like for some reason, like at least he was just like annoying and whatever. But like she, I didn't even know who she was. Yeah, I thought you were gonna suck. I thought you were talking about Jovan there when you started going. I was like, oh, like that guy. I thought he was a mascot the way he was talking. Yeah, no, it's the stupid. The other that woman, alien-looking thing. I was like, why are you here? Yeah, certainly a fair question here. And give me a grade on this thing. How do you think this stands up? Like, you think like. I mean, honestly, I, you know, I went in with, in it with low expectations. So I'm going with like a B, a B minus, like nothing crazy, kind of like in the middle, but like a little better. Cause there was like some certain things that I appreciated for like a moviegoer. But other than that, nothing higher than a B minus. I'd say about, I agree with you about that Spock. I feel like this is one thing where, you know, it's fine. Like it's, it's better than you expect it's going to be, but I feel like, if you were like, unless you're like a Marvel completionist, I don't think yeah. you need, I don't think you need to seek this out, like actively seek it out for like your spooky season viewing. Yeah, like to be completely honest with you, if you didn't mention that to me, I probably would have never watched it. Yeah, there's so much going on right now. I mean, spooky season has a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot. I mean, like 
What exactly. Are some, what are some things you're like, you like, want, want to check out for spooky season? Uh, I want I know this is lame for all your listeners and we're filming this on the 12th and I'm a little late. I have not seen Hocus Pocus 2, which yes, I've heard the crappy reviews, but I still want to see it. Like I have to make my rounds of my spooky season stuff too. So I have to watch the original Hocus Pocus, which I haven't seen this year. I have to watch Nightmare Before Christmas. I understand that goes into two different holidays, but like, you know, all those things. And I want to watch the Midnight, whatchamacallit, with, that we were talking about earlier. Oh, uh, the Midnight Club that Alan and I talked about earlier in the podcast. Yes, that's on my list as well. You, like, really sold me on that one. Yeah, that's really good. I, have another, like, I don't know if you were a big fan of The Shining back in the day, but you ever watch Dr. Sleep? <sighs> yes, that was, okay, I had, again, that's another movie I came in with low expectations, and I was actually pretty blown away. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, that's another Mike Flanagan special here. And I was like so pumped to see like Ewan McGregor in that show and that movie is the adult Danny Torrance. So like that was fun to see that and go back yeah. go back to the hotel. Yeah. And like they did a lot of really great homages to the shining that I was not expecting. Yeah, I mean I suppose it is a direct basically direct sequel to the shining. So Yes. And going back, I know we talked about this before. Um, the Haunting of Hill House, I do enjoy watching around the Halloween time. I know that's only been in our lives for a couple of years now, but I really enjoyed that, you know, mini series. Basically, whatever Mike Flanagan puts out in October, that's what you should be checking out, in my opinion. To be honest, what Midnight Mass was another one he did. That was last year's Midnight Mass. Yes. Yeah, that was so good. Yeah, it was a stealth. We need more Mike Flanagan talk, I think. Yeah, stealth vampire show, basically, uh, Midnight Mass. Yeah, I was not expecting that. I remember you put me on that one as well, so I definitely have to watch Midnight Club. Yeah, Midnight Club, I'm excited for I'm excited for you to check that out because that was a lot of fun to watch that every year. I do think that was good, and I don't know if you're aware, but Unsolved Mysteries coming back on Netflix. They have new episodes coming this oh month. Oh, my God, yes. I literally think of Unsolved Mysteries, and I think of you. Yeah. So I'm very excited to divulge into the new Oh, again, I know we talk about this every single time, but I always feel like they're going to solve the mystery, but the freaking title is Unsolved Mysteries, and it hurts, but again, I always feel like they're like going to have a break in the case, and it's still unsolved. It is unsolved, and what's not unsolved is Sam's time on the podcast. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. For all you got, be able to follow social media and keep up with some of the stuff you're doing. Uh, you follow me on TikTok, on Twitter, on whatever, but it's S D E R O S six on Twitter, S D E R O S A one seven five on TikTok, whatever. Just Google Sam DeRosa, you'll find me. Sounds good, Sam. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, and that will do it for the third annual Halloween pop culture party here on the Justin Suffering Podcast. I thank my guest John Stanko. Talk about the peripheralist favorite Halloween movies. Alan Austin for our look into the latest chapter of the Flanniverse with Midnight Man, uh, Midnight Club, and Sandra Rosa, who just on here talking about the Marvel Halloween special Werewolf by Night. You want more good stuff like this podcast, including my look at the New York Mets uh, hiring situation here in terms of the front office. They can make a push for David Stearns, the, who is the former Brewer GM, president of base operations, who stepped down recently. Check out the blog, justinsuffering.wordpress.com. Check out the Sky Guys podcast, so 
episode eight of Andor. Our recap is up there. Episode nine coming this week. Make sure to subscribe. If you want instant access to the podcast when it's dropped. Supposed to wing a few days on here. So again, Sky Guys Podcast, all your favorite podcasts, black to the top of the show. So follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. That's going to do it for our Halloween pop culture party. We'll be back later in the week. We're going to have a sports episode, do some college basketball coverage here. We're going to do some NFL picks and more. Until then, happy Halloween, everybody.